Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I am Matthew Arnold, your host here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you along with us. Lent. It is the first week of Lent, and Lent is a time to meditate on the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And today we will look at the first of the final four, which is uh, death. And we will uh, share a meditation on death from Thomas Akempis and the Imitation of Christ. Also, we'll dive into number seven of Pope St. John Paul II's pastoral plan for the Church in the third millennium and discover what's new about the new evangelization and what role you are meant to play in bringing the gospel of truth and life to an ever darker and more broken world. But uh, first off, if you've been listening to this program, I suspect you know that I am an advocate of the extraordinary form of the Mass, and I often unpack the Sunday readings from the traditional lectionary, as I will later uh, in today's program also. Uh, And while I firmly believe that tradition is the future of the Church, especially considering that traditional Catholicism is the only sector of the Church that's actually growing uh, instead of declining at this given moment, uh, it it struck me that the other day that most of our listeners, and that probably includes you, um, regularly attend the Novus Ordo Liturgy. And with the exception of a multi-part series that I did back on the old uh, daily happy hour broadcast, where I compared the two rites, I should say the two forms of the one Roman rite, um, I have really uh, neglected it. I haven't uh, said much of anything about the Novus Ordo Liturgy. Pardon me, I'm a dealing with my allergies right now. Anyway, uh, the point is that um, on further reflection, I consider that something of an omission. And so today I want to start a new feature to which we will return in the weeks ahead. Uh, and that is a no-nonsense look at the ordinary form of the Mass. Now, first things first, I, I like to start at the beginning. And since the introductory rites of the Mass include a penitential act, and I consider that penitential act to be uh, particularly appropriate for the season of Lent, We'll start there. Mass begins, of course, with a procession of the ministers into the sanctuary. They read or chant the antiphon or sing an entrance hymn. And then the priest blesses the congregation with the sign of the cross, followed by one of three greetings. The grace of our, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And the people respond and also are uh, with your spirit. <clears throat> or grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and with your spirit, or simply the Lord be with you and with your spirit. This is how Mass begins. I remember during uh, Benedict's pontificate when he was trying to kind of return some sobriety to the celebration of the Novus Ordo. This is uh, when Cardinal Rinze was prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine, uh, or Congregation for uh, Worship and Sacraments. He mentioned how the priest sets the tone for the Mass. He said, suppose a priest comes in at the beginning of Mass and says, Good morning, everybody. Did your team win last night? That is not a liturgical greeting. He says, if you can find it in any liturgical book, I'll give you a turkey. The point is that uh, Cardinal Rinze, it was his opinion that priests should say the black and do the red, as the old saying goes. Because in the altar missal, the, uh, the text in black is the words that the priest is supposed to say. And the text in red describes the actions he's supposed to perform, hence the term rubrics from the Latin word for red. Now, the general instruction of the Roman Missal says, 
the priest or a deacon or another minister may very briefly introduce the faithful to the Mass of the day, but that's only after the liturgical greeting, not in place of it. And then comes the penitential act, followed by the Kyrie. And there's three options in the Novus Ordo for the penitential act. They all begin with the priest's invitation. Brethren, or optionally, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. Notice the official 2010 translation is brethren, and the option is brothers and sisters. So sisters and brothers, folks, you know, what any, anything else is, is not an official option. Okay, and then Father pauses briefly and then leads one of the uh, penitential acts. Now, the first penitential act, A, as it's known, is uh, the Novus Ordo version of the Confidier. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do, and then striking the breast through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. Now, option B has the priest saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, and the people reply, For we have sinned against you. And the priest says, Show us, O Lord, your mercy, and the people saying, Grant us your salvation. I'm 25 years a Catholic. Uh, I don't think I've ever <laughs> heard that uh, particular option. And then option C, which is where a priest or even another minister says these invocations, naming the gracious works of the Lord to which the, he invites the people to respond. For example, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart. Lord, have mercy. And the people reply, Lord, have mercy. You came to call sinners. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. You were seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Now, optionally, instead of Lord, have mercy uh, uh, and Christ, have mercy, the people and the priest may say, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, which is the, you know, uh, traditional Now, all the forms of the penitential act are then followed by the priest's absolution. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. And then comes the Kyrie, unless, of course, it was already included in option three. Now, technically, the Kyrie is not part of the penitential act, but follows it. Now, over the years, I've known priests that, you know, pretty much use option C all year long, um, pretty much exclusively, and then maybe they use option A uh, during Lent. Uh, And I think that's unfortunate, you know. And so I want to quote at length a a catechesis, an instruction from Pope Francis. This is from 2018. Pope Francis, he said, quote, To prepare ourselves to celebrate worthily the sacred mysteries, we acknowledge before God and our brothers and sisters that we have sinned. Significantly, we make this confession as a community, yet in the confidior each one of us speaks personally. I confess that I have sinned. See, this is not true in the other case of the other two uh, penitential rites. Um, like the humble publican in Jesus' parable, this the Pope Francis says, we strike our breast and recognize that we're unworthy of the gift of God's mercy and forgiveness. Then we beg the intercession of Our Lady and all the angels and saints to sustain us on the path of holiness and conversion. The priest then pronounces the absolution. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Unlike the absolution granted in confession, this does not remit mortal sin, although it does venial. Yet, he goes on, it expresses our trust in God's promise of forgiveness and reconciliation. We thus join the great line of biblical figures like David, 
the prodigal son, and St. Peter, who, conscious of their sin, acknowledged it before God with confidence in the transforming power of grace. I don't think I could have said it uh, any better myself. And you notice how Pope Francis begins his remarks by saying that the Confidior prepares us to participate in the sacred mysteries worthily. Both the priest who's celebrating and the faithful who are assisting. And we need this preparation. Because while the church is holy, it is at the same time a community of sinners. And we're all in need of ongoing conversion. We all need God's forgiveness. And we need to assist at Mass worthily. And we can find the root of this kind of three-part act of confession, penance, and absolution right in sacred scripture uh, and on tradition as well. According to 1 John chapter 1, if we say we are without sin, we are only deceiving ourselves. And the, and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wrongdoing. And then um, in the epistle of St. James, chapter 5, uh, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Taken together, uh, those verses, they provide that scriptural foundation for the beginning of the Confidior, where we can say, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let a man examine himself, let a man first examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. And, and so that penitential act also begins with a priest inviting us to call to mind our sins. So it shouldn't be any surprise that, that there's been a penitential act in the Mass from the very earliest days. I mean, uh, in the extraordinary form, we have the prayers at the foot of the altar, but it goes all the way back to, you know, the Didache, which is uh, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles that was compiled at the end of the first century. And it says, um, assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer the Eucharist, but first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. So from the very beginning, that penitential act was an essential part of the holy sacrifice of the Mass to make it pleasing to God. And it's right there in Scripture and tradition, and of course, uh, speaking of tradition, right in the Holy Mass. Now, there are some cases where the penitential act may be omitted, like on Ash Wednesday, for example. The penitential act at the beginning of Mass is omitted because there's a penitential act in the blessing of the ashes. Or uh, uh, in the Novus Ordo, typically during the Easter time, the rite of sprinkling, right, which is the, the, the new version of the, the Asperges May, which is a reminder of our baptism where the priest goes out and sprinkles everybody with holy water. Um, that takes the place of the penitential act in, in the new Mass. And however, though, I have noticed that some priests these days simply omit it altogether. They go right from let us call to mind our sins to the Kyrie. And that's a serious omission. And for three reasons. Uh, n- number one, <clears throat> because the Mass isn't the personal property of the priest. I mean, I, and, unless there is some uh, instruction or indult that I don't know about, you know, that, that's a serious omission. And we have a need and we have a right to confession and that absolution for the worthy celebration of Mass. Like St. James says, if we say without, we are without sin, we are only deceiving ourselves. And that's no nonsense. Coming back with the gospel from the first uh, Sunday of Lent in the extraordinary form right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this.
Okay, welcome. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Couldn't remember the name of my show for a minute. Matthew Arnold here. Glad to be with you on this uh, Wednesday um, or whenever you may be listening. It is the first week of Lent during the time of this broadcast, and uh, we're thinking about the four last things. We're thinking about uh, sin. We're thinking about penance and reconciliation. And uh, the church would have us uh, to meditate this week upon temptation. I'm going to share with you the gospel from the first Sunday of Lent from the extraordinary form, which is the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Before commencing his great work, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert where he prayed and fasted forty days and forty nights. Then he was hungry. And Satan, coming to tempt him, said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man liveth not by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then Satan took him up to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He hath given his angels charge of thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest perhaps thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. But Satan made another attempt. He took our Lord to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory thereof, and said, All these will I give thee, if falling down thou wilt adore me. Jesus answered, Begone, Satan. For it is written, The Lord thy God thou shalt adore, and him only shalt thou serve. And the devil left Jesus, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So we see here that the temptation uh, of Jesus came from without, from the devil. Jesus had nothing to fear from the other traditional enemies of the soul, uh, namely the world and the flesh, because he was without concupiscence. Therefore, when when Jesus was tempted, his temptation could only come from outside, from without, as was also the case with our first parents uh, in paradise. And of course, no temptation could take hold of Jesus because, you know, even though he had a human nature as well as a divine nature, even though he had a human will as well as a divine will, his human will was always in complete harmony with his divine will and could never turn against it or ever consent to sin. So the real question is, why? Why was our Lord tempted? Why did he allow himself to be tempted? And there's a number of reasons. Number one, because he came into the world precisely to fight and to overcome sin and Satan. And the conflict between Jesus and the old serpent began as soon as he commenced his public life. Uh, and And it began with his victoriously repulsing Satan's three temptations. And he gloriously you know, carried on this battle all the way to the end, crushing the head of Satan with his sacrifice on the cross, with his death and his resurrection. Um, So that's number one. Number two, the Son of God was tempted because he wished to do violence to himself, to abase himself um, in order to redeem us, right? Because that, it's it's fitting for our sins. And it was a great humiliation to the Son of God that Satan, uh, you know, the essence of all that is evil should approach him and, and, and dare to, to try and tempt him to sin uh, and, and disobedience against the Father. I mean, it, it's inconceivable that our divine Savior would stoop so low, even to, you know, exposing himself to the contacts and the seductions of the devil himself. And yet he did, and he did it for love of us. 
Number three, our Lord was tempted because Jesus is the spiritual father of all mankind. And here's kind of, this is where the rubber meets the road. Jesus is the new Adam. He is our covenant representative. He's like us in everything but sin. And so he desired to be tempted, just like the original Adam, and to expiate, that is to, to make up for the fall uh, of our first parents. You know, you compare the temptation of Adam and Eve with the temptation of Christ. You know, the former took place in the midst of the, of the beauty and the abundance of the Garden of Eden in paradise, and the latter in, in the bare desert uh, when our Lord was in a painful state of hunger, having fasted for 40 days. You know, Satan tempted our first parents to gluttony and pride and lust of the eyes, and he succeeded. And he tried to tempt our Lord with the same three uh, lusts, but he was overcome. And finally, angels came and drove Adam and Eve out of paradise. But angels came to the desert to minister to Jesus. And then number four, our Lord was tempted in order to show us how to meet temptations to evil in our life. And more on that in a minute. And number five, in order to comfort us and encourage us in the many trials and temptations of this life. St. Paul reminds us in the book of Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this gospel shows us the different kinds of temptation. We kind of touched on them. In the first temptation, Satan wants to tempt uh, our Savior against the Father's will to create bread by his own power. Uh, you know, instead of trusting in God's plan and uh, uh, patiently enduring his hunger. So the devil is trying to tempt our Lord to, uh, by sensuality, by this unlawful desire for food, unlawful because, you know, the, it's the Father's will that he would fast. And so, in other words, by gluttony. So that's number one. The second temptation, Satan tries to awaken a spiritual pride in our Lord Jesus. Throw yourself down, you know, and God will help you. And this is the, the, the cunning seduction of Satan to, to deform a humble and submissive confidence in God's mercy into a prideful presumption. Okay, so there's number two. And by the third temptation, Satan wished to arouse in Jesus uh, what they call concupiscence of the eyes, that is, a desire for riches, for power, for pleasure. Um, and these three evil passions were how the devils, you know, successfully seduced the first man. Uh, with the words, you know, why hath God commanded you that you should not eat of every tree in paradise, right? That's his in inducement to gluttony or the concupiscence of the flesh. And then the words, your eyes shall be opened, will be as a temptation to pride. And in the words, you shall be as gods, was an enticement to and, and a desire for the power uh, and glory known traditionally as concupiscence of the eyes, right? To see, the eyes not satisfied with seeing. So our first parents gave in to these temptations because they listened to the suggestions of Satan, because they engaged him, they, they held intercourse with him, and, and they gazed at the forbidden fruit. Uh, Jesus, though, he overcame and conquered both the temptation and the tempter. And how? Well, 
what does the gospel say about the means of resisting temptation? It's right here. Because of the fall, these three evil passions that we've talked about, which are the source of our most dangerous temptations, by the way, uh, and are also common in everyone. So besides these passions, and that's the flesh, uh, our fellow creatures are also a source of temptation. That's what we refer to as the world. And then, of course, the devil, by God's permission, continues to tempt us to evil um, and to do evil. And it's because we're surrounded by temptations that Jesus taught us by example how to wage the battle against them. So we're going to take a closer look at just how Jesus obtained victory over Satan and over temptation. Well, first off, he did not needlessly expose himself to temptation. Scripture says it was the Holy Spirit, in, in Mark's gospel, it says it drove him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Right? So the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. So we can say that love drove him into the desert. Love for us, because it's only for love of us and, and for our salvation that he endured the temptation. And this teaches us not to put ourselves in danger of sin. You know, uh, and not to do that unnecessarily. I mean, sometimes we can't avoid it, but 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 we should be careful to do our best to avoid the occasions of sin. Like it says in Ecclesiasticus 3.27, he that loveth danger shall perish in it. And number two, Jesus prepared himself to resist temptation by prayer and fasting. And so we too, we need to pray and we need to practice self-denial in order that we'll always be ready to fight against the enemy of our salvation. Right? That's uh, the, uh, the motto of uh, the Jesus 911 program. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Or as our Lord would say, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he commands us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And we can be sure that we will become strong in spirit and able to resist temptation if we practice self-denial. And then number three, during his temptation, our Lord rebuked Satan with the words of Scripture. And, and, and finally, he sent the tempter away authoritatively with the words, Be gone, Satan. So whether the temptation comes from within or from without, we too should remember to, to, to turn at once to God and his holy word and to tell the tempter, Be gone. Like St. James says, Resist the devil and he will fly from you. <clears throat> word about self-denial. It's the third precept of the church to fast and abstain on the days appointed. And as we talked about last week, the 40 days fast of Moses and the 40 day fast of Elias in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the 40 days fast of Jesus in the New Testament. So we have our Lord's own example that mortification is necessary for us, and that's why the church celebrates the 40 days of Lent. Okay, uh, the more progress that you make, by the way, against the world and the flesh, the more actively you're going to be tempted by the devil. And this gospel reveals his tactics. First, Satan's a liar and the father of lies. And in the temptation of Christ, he proves it. He proves himself to be a liar with the words, all these things will I give you. And he further proves it uh, when he says, you know, he makes that condition, if you will fall down and worship me. So falsely representing himself as the giver of all things and then simultaneously demanding divine worship, a creature. He reveals that his whole desire is to oppose what is divine and to put himself in God's place as the Lord of creation. Non serviam, I will not serve. That's his motto. And that is the abominable pride that permeates our world. It's the sin of the devil 
And, and that's something that we can over, only overcome through obedience to God. And Lent's a time for self-examination. You know, if you pay attention to yourself, you will find in the course of the day that you were assailed by countless temptations. But temptation is not a sin, right? It only becomes sin when you take pleasure in it and consent to it. As often as you, no matter how often you're tempted, as often as you resist and overcome the temptation, you gain in virtue and you, and you merit a reward from God. It's like Thomas Kempis said in The Imitation of Christ, if only we would exert ourselves and take a firm stand in this battle, we would see how God comes to our aid. For he is always ready to help those who put their trust in him. He even provides occasions for us to do battle so that we will overcome and be victorious. Your temptations are those occasions to do battle for you to overcome and be victorious with Christ. So when you're tempted, turn to God, Pray to Jesus and Mary for help. And remember that the word of God, uh, which warns you against the sins to which you are tempted. All right. More on that in a minute. And when we come back, a meditation on death from Thomas Akempis in the Imitation of Christ. Lots more coming up right here on No Nonsense Catholic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. back to No Nonsense Catholic. The confusion stops here. Uh, I wanted to uh, make, say a final word <clears throat> um, about temptation and overcoming temptation, and that's following the example of Jesus of answering temptations with the inspired Word of God. Um, and um, for example, you know, if you're tempted to sin, uh, if you're tempted to anger, you think of the words, uh, blessed are the meek, or uh, for the anger of man works not the justice of God, from St. James. Or if you're inclined to, to be contentious, to quarrel with people, you can think to yourself, blessed are the peacemakers. Or even say it, for that matter. <clears throat> and if you're in danger of telling lies, remind yourself of the proverb, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, and on and on. This is one of the reasons why it's important, I think, to, to learn some scripture verses by heart, especially those that speak uh, most uh, clearly to you and the temptations that you have. And then, like Jesus, you will be able to answer temptations with the inspired Word of God. Now, I wanted uh, to go next to some thoughts uh, on death from The Imitation of Christ, uh, Thomas Akempis. And I, I love The Imitation of Christ, and I have many translations. Probably my favorite is that from Bishop Richard Challoner. And Bishop Challoner is the one who did the revision of the Douay Reims, the 1899 uh, United States version of the Douay Reims Bible, uh, largely changing archaic spellings and so forth. I mean, he didn't really change the text, but he also did, you know, chapter uh, synopses and, and notes and so forth. I have a great respect for Bishop Challoner, and, and he did this really terrific translation. It is, though, it's, it's a little dense. I mean, I just spent a quarter of an hour trying to, to unpack 11 verses of Scripture. Now we're going to take a whole chapter of, uh, of the imitation. <clears throat> you know, uh, in this more formal English might be a little difficult. So I'm going to read uh, from a, the, the translation by Claire Fitzpatrick that was done in the, the 1970s just for the ease of, of understanding. And then if we have time, I'm going to share some reflections from Bishop Challoner uh, and uh, from his version. He actually has some practical reflections to share. So this is from chapter 23, book one 
of the imitation of Christ, it's meditation on death. The hour of death will soon come for you. See to it that you spend your time here well. There's a common saying among uh, that men are here today and gone tomorrow, and once they're out of sight, they're soon forgotten. Right? Out of sight, out of mind. How dull we are and how hard of heart, for we think only of the present and make little provision for the life hereafter. If you were wise, you would so order your life as though you were to die before the day is over. If your conscience were clear, you wouldn't be afraid of death. Better to give up sin than to fear death. If you were unprepared to face death today, how will you be tomorrow? Tomorrow is uncertain, and you may not be here to see it. What good is a long life if we don't use it to advance spiritually? Sad to say, it often happens that a long life adds to our guilt and not to our amendment. If only we could point to one day in our life that was really well spent. Many count the years of their conversion, but often there's little to show for it. Right? I've been Catholic 25 years. How, how holy am I really? He, he says, if it is frightening to die, it may be more dangerous to live long. You are truly blessed if you keep the hour of your death before you and prepare yourself for it. If you ever saw anyone die, remember that you too must travel the same path. Right? So, so if you're in a good state spiritually, death might just be a mercy. It might be more dangerous for you to, to live and you know, deal with temptation. In the morning, <clears throat> says Thomas, think that you may not live till night. And when night comes, do not be sure you'll live till tomorrow. Therefore, always be ready and so live that you will not have an unprovided death. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Many have died suddenly without warning. For the Son of Man will come at an hour when you least expect him. That's Luke twelve forty. When the hour of death comes, you will begin to think differently about your past life. And great will be your sorrow if you uh, have been so negligent, uh, that you have been so negligent and lazy in God's service. How happy and wise are those who try now to become what they would want to be at the hour of death. A perfect contempt for the world, an ardent desire to progress in virtue, a love of discipline, a prompt obedience, a denial of self, and a patient bearing of all adversities for the love of Christ will give you great confidence of dying happily. You want to die well, you need to live well. Strive to do good deeds while you are well, for when you're sick, you don't know what you will be able to do. Sickness does not often change us for the better. Also, few are sanctified by making many pilgrimages. Now, that was super popular in the Middle Ages to, to remit your sins by going on pilgrimage someplace. You read the Canterbury Tales and you see what, you know, that people gathering together are people gathered together, however holy their intent. He says, Time is pressure. Or, uh, do not put your trust in your friends and your neighbors, nor put off the care of your soul's welfare until after death. For you will be forgotten sooner than you think. Right? In other words, do penance for your sins now. Don't count on people praying you out of purgatory. It is better to provide for your salvation now by doing good deeds that will earn eternal merit for you than to rely on the help of others after your death. If you have no concern for yourself now, who will be concerned about you later on? Time is precious now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. That's St. Paul says in Scripture. But alas, that you spend the time so unprofitably. Time will come when you will wish that you had one more day, even one hour, to put your life in order. But there's no assurance that you'll get it. My dear friend, from how great a peril may you now deliver yourself 
and from what terrible fear if only you would dread to offend God in this life and always be ready for death. Learn to live now that at the hour of death you may rather rejoice than tremble. If you will have a life with Christ, you must learn how to die to the world. And if you were to go freely to Christ, then you must learn how now to despise all things. Chastise your body now by penance so that you can face death with sure confidence that God will forgive you. Again, uh, a hopeful confidence, not a, not a uh, prideful presumption. You're a fool if you think you have a long life ahead of you and you're not sure of living even one day. You remember in the gospel, the parable that Jesus tells about the rich man. And he says, uh, you know, today your life will be required of you, even though he's making all these plans. How many have been deceived with thinking they had a long life ahead and died without warning? How often have you heard that someone was murdered, another drowned, still another fell and broke his neck? How this person choked to death and another dropped dead while at play? Some have burned to death, some were killed by the sword, others by disease, and still others by the hands of robbers. One thing is certain, death is the end of all. A person's life passes suddenly, like a shadow. How many people will remember you and pray for you once you are dead? So do all you can now, for you do not know when you will die or what will face you after death. Gain merit for eternity now while there is time and concern yourself only with your eternal salvation. Attend to those things that are to God's honor and glory. Honor the saints and follow their example, and you will have friends waiting to receive you into everlasting dwellings, as our Lord said in Luke 16, 9, when your life here is ended. Live on earth as a pilgrim and a stranger, unconcerned with the world's business. What great Advice for those of us, you know, living in this world full of smartphones and social media and all the pressure that it brings with us. Let me see that again. Live on earth as a pilgrim and a stranger, unconcerned with the world's business. This is not your true home. We don't belong here, okay? (laughs) We were made for something else. Let your heart remain free and lifted up to God, for you have not here a lasting city. Persevere in prayer sending your aspirations daily up to God so that at the hour of death your soul may depart from the world and go to its Lord. Now, Bishop Chaloner uh, had, like I said, some practical reflections on this chapter. He says, To fear death and not to avoid sin, which alone can make death really terrible, is to fear it unavailably for salvation. As Christians, we ought to dread death so as to make the fear of it the motive and rule of a good life. The great secret of dying happily is to live always in the same state in which we hope to die, and in which we desire that God may find us when our last hour shall have arrived. We should therefore do all the good and practice all the virtues now, which we shall then wish we would have done and practiced. Try to die daily to some one of those things which when you depart this life you must leave forever anyway. What terrific advice. Yeah, that's what self-denial uh, is about. To give up these things, even, even lawful things, because, you know, uh, they're, they're not going to matter in the long run. Try to die daily to some of those things that you must leave forever anyway. Happy the Christian who dies often in spirit ere he quits the flesh. His death shall be holy and precious in the sight of God. 
That's, you know, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, as it says in the Psalms. Okay, how do we sum this all up? Uh, I know for certain that I will die, but I do not know the day or the hour or what will be the state of my soul when I depart this life. And that is why I have to prepare now. That is why I must pray to our Lord Jesus by the merits of his sacred passion to help prepare me for that supremely important moment. To grant me the grace to be more diligent in my activities and pursuits, more faithful to his graces now, more attentive to my prayers now, more regular in frequenting the sacraments now, more constant in the performance of good works now, and in the practice of those virtues that are proper to my state in life. So that through the merits of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Redeemer, I may experience consolation in my last moments and leave this veil of tears in the confident hope of my salvation. And that is no nonsense. <clears throat> now, friends, I want to share with you quickly, a, uh, it's the year of St. Joseph, and I think everybody should be praying to St. Joseph every day. And especially that prayer to St. Joseph for a happy death. He's the patron of a happy death because Joseph left this earth in the arms of Jesus and Mary. So let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O blessed Joseph, you gave forth your last breath in the loving embrace of Jesus and Mary. When the seal of death shall close my life, come with Jesus and Mary to aid me. Obtain for me this solace for that hour to die with their holy arms around me. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I commend my soul, living and dying, into your sacred arms. Amen. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the new evangelization and our role in bringing the gospel to a dark world. We stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. One of John Paul II's lesser known, but in my humble opinion, most important encyclicals is Novo Millennio Ineonte, as we enter the new millennium. And this document, released in 2001, was totally unprecedented, uh, as far as I know, because it was the first time in the history of history that a pope laid out a practical pastoral plan for the whole church. And it's of particular interest to you and to me uh, because this plan is specifically ended for our, our intended for our own days, for the 21st century. You know, I'm, I'm a medievalist. I like to think about the Middle Ages and, and the glory of Christendom. But I'm, I'm thinking more and more that these days are like the, the, the early church, the, the times of persecution, right? The, the church of the, the catacomb and the, and the Colosseum. But, uh, and, and that's why it's important to, to have a spirituality that speaks to what's actually going on in the world right now. And so here are the seven steps uh, of St. John Paul II's pastoral plan. First is holiness, to sincerely strive to be more holy, what was traditionally known as the quest for Christian perfection. I've talked about this a million times on the program. Uh, and in the Vatican II document on the laity, Apostolicum Maxuositatum, how it says that the laity must take up the renewal of the temporal order as their own special obligation. In other words, as uh, John Paul put it, to sanctify the secular order, which is to say to make the world outside the four walls of your parish church more holy. 
But of course, it's a given that you can't give what you don't have. And so Vatican II tells us in Lumen Gentium chapter 5, the Lord Jesus, the divine teacher and model of all perfection, preached holiness of life to each and every one of his disciples of every condition. All the Christian faithful of whatever rank or status are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. No exceptions. This is the universal call to holiness. And St. John Paul offers a concrete plan to following that call. So first is holiness, strive for holiness. Number two is prayer as a conversation with God. Number three, centering our lives on the Eucharist. Four is frequent confession. Five is to live by grace, to live a sacramental life, which is uh, um, the, the fruit of that frequent communion and confession. Number six, meditating on the Bible and the catechism. In other words, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And number seven, which is what concerns us today, evangelization, the new evangelization to bring the light of the gospel to an increasingly dark world. Now, I hold in my hands a letter that uh, arrived in my mailbox a day before yesterday. It's addressed to my wife, and you can see it's, uh, uh, for those of you on uh, watching the video, this is a uh, piece of ruled paper, binder paper. It's handwritten. Dear Betty, that's my wife, <clears throat> we live in your neighborhood. We have not been able to speak with you personally, but we have some important information we want to share with you. As a result of the novel coronavirus, our preaching work, House to House, has been modified. Privilege to share in this work, blah, 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 blah. You're being invited to benefit from a program that helps people learn the Bible, the Bible's answers to such important questions as why do we grow old and die? What's the purpose of life? How can you find real happiness, etc.? Our official website is jw.org. We got a letter from the Jehovah's Witnesses in our neighborhood, right? They, they can't go door, door to door, so they're actually handwriting and, and mailing letters with a stamp and the whole bit. And inside, of course, there's a little pamphlet, a um, little one sheet for their, their uh, uh, evangelization proselytism magazine that you can get. Okay. Um, I understand that uh, something like 90% of Jehovah's Witnesses engage in evangelization, which is directly inversely proportional to the measly 10% of Catholics who evangelize. But, you know, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, um, many evangelical communities even, are they're primarily sheep stealers. They're not, they're not bringing the gospel to people. They're, they're getting people out of one church and into theirs. Uh, and often they, um, you know, they swell their ranks with former Catholics. In fact, uh, many of these outfits actually target uh, Catholics for conversion. And they count on the fact that the Catholics are not going to know their faith. They expect it, and I'm sorry to say that their expectations uh, have been borne out. So obviously Catholics, first off, you need to know your faith in order to keep your faith, and certainly before you can even hope to share it. Now, in the last 50 years, an unprecedented number of Catholics have abandoned the faith for other Christian communities, for, for these pseudo-Christian groups like the, uh, the JWs. But Christians of all types have been abandoning their religion for no faith at all. John Paul II said the third millennium brings the urgent challenge of the new evangelization. True, it is not easy to proclaim the gospel in a world which claims not to need God, yet we are bound by the compelling words of St. Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, many people today, 
including many Catholics, are all caught up in the world of smartphones and social media, and, and they find it hard to believe in a loving God. And they either doubt his existence altogether or, or the reality of, of, of suffering and human misery uh, make them doubt his love. And besides, they will say science is, is solving all the big puzzles of the universe anyway, and psychology is unlocking the mysteries of the human heart and mind. So, so who needs God? Who needs religion in the first place? Uh, here, new evangelization tip, pointing at, them yell, pointing at them and yelling idolater, probably not the best way to proceed. Uh, you know, it's perhaps best to introduce into the conversation the fact that there are questions that don't go away. Science is pretty good at answering some how questions. How does the universe run? But, but it can't begin to a- uh, answer why. Why is there something rather than nothing? What caused the whole universe to exist in the first place? Why is there so much suffering in the world? What's the meaning and purpose of life? More importantly, what's the meaning and purpose of my life? And these are the big questions, you know, and I will tell you that many people today are going to be suspicious if you claim to know all the answers. But you can share the fact that there's a limit to what human beings can discover for themselves. And that we need to admit that there are some things that are, frankly, beyond human understanding. And in this way, the new evangelization is rather like the old evangelization, and then it's about sharing the very heart of Christianity, the belief that God has revealed himself, that he's spoken to us throughout history, that he's revealed himself uh, um, most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. The point is we don't have to go around in circles, you know, looking for meaning and trying to solve everything ourselves because he's come to help us. Now, the idea uh, that Catholic Christians you know, claim to know the truth about God is going to seem arrogant or, or fundamentalist to many people. But really, I mean, you might point out there's a kind of humility behind this claim. It's not like Catholics are, are special or, or better than other people, obviously, far from it. Rather, it's that we've been given this extraordinary gift, this, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the point of evangelization is just to share that, to share that gift with others. It's Jesus himself who taught us that he is the way to God and the truth and the life. Not a way, not the preferred way, not one way among others, the way. So what's the message that we want to share? What is the heart of evangelization? Well, it's simply this, that God is love. That his love created and sustains the whole universe. That, that his love brings into being every human life. And that we were meant to live in peace with God and with each other. But that peace has been broken by sin, and that's something that we cannot fix by ourselves. But the good news is that in the fullness of time, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. He came into the world to reveal the love and mercy of God and to lead us to the Father. Through him, we can find peace with God and with each other. And his death on the cross brings us forgiveness His resurrection on the third day, his ascension into heaven, uh, give us the hope of this astonishing new life. And the gift of the Holy Spirit allows us to share in that life, even now, here on earth, through faith and through belonging to the church. And, you know, they might not be convinced by these ideas, and I'd be surprised if they were. But at least you can share with them that the heart of Christianity is not a theory or program, but a person. Jesus Christ, a person you can come to know above all through faith. You know, in any human relationship, there are moments when you have to trust, you have to make a commitment. 
you know, and remember that, 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 uh, that, that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't do the converting. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But, but faith is also a, a step that you can choose to take. It's an act of the will and therefore a personal decision. And so despite our un- uncertainties, you know, we have to meet him halfway. And that's what we want to communicate, that, that, that faith changes everything. That it transforms our life and our, our relationships. And you can take that step of faith most simply through prayer. And you shouldn't be afraid of taking that step. To, you shouldn't be afraid of opening your heart to God in prayer, no matter how uncertain you feel. And you can help them with this. You, to pray with them, or at least to let them know that prayer is like opening a door to allow God to work in your life. That faith's not an irrational leap in the dark, that it's a response to God and to his love. And that through prayer, we can discover that he's calling us and that it matters that we try to respond. Ask and it will be given to you, our Lord says. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. And if they do, they'll come closer to Christ in faith and that will bring them to the church. As the old saying goes, church won't always get you to Christ, but Christ will always get you to church. And as we know that, you know, the church is the community that was founded by Christ on Peter and the apostles. So as followers, and that's us, would always have a home to live in and a family to belong to. And that very community is found in its fullness uh, today in the Catholic Church. And that's where we receive the, the life of Christ in the sacraments, come to know him in, in the word, hear his teaching through the magisterium. We share in that great Christian tradition stretches all the way back through the centuries to the earthly ministry of Jesus. And that's why he founded the church, to continue that ministry. And, and the church is the, is the bride of Christ, the mystical body, despite the sins and weaknesses of its members, Christ never abandons his church. It is a spiritual home in which we can rejoice in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and in communion with our brothers and sisters. And we have our Lord's promise that the powers of darkness will never prevail against it. And Christ will be with us until the end of the world. So the new evangelization is about showing the people of the post-Christian world their true inheritance. That God created us for a purpose, that he loves for us, that he cares for us and that we can never find true peace or lasting happiness without him. Our job is to point the way through words, yes, but first and foremost, through the witness of our lives. Father Bill McCarthy, God bless him, said that we are called to be apostles, that God is love, and we're apostles of love, that that we're apostles of truth to love Christ with our minds, apostles of love to love Christ with our hearts, and apostles of action to love Christ with our hands. And that, my friend, is no nonsense. Great to have you along with us, as always. Um, Such a pleasure to be here, and I just want to say thank you for your support, especially your prayers. And uh, for those of you that can, if you can uh, help support us financially, find out how to do that at vmpr.org. Click on the Donate button. And um, in the meantime, I hope to see you next week. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family. See you next time.